Hello. Welcome to Psychopath in Your Life. I'm your host, Diane Emerson. I'm the author of the book, Psychopaths in Our Lives, My Interviews, which is available on Amazon, iTunes, and all the other platforms. You'll have to excuse me today. I'm struggling with a reincurring case of shingles, so let me just try to get my way through this. Today is episode number 56, and I'd like to continue part two of where I was talking last time about the concept of projective identification. So let's start off with her, some of her thoughts, which was, change yourself was a psychopath mother's mantra to me. Find what's broken in you. Giving their lies that much credence also served to reinforce my self-doubt, keeping me separated from my ability to critically think and trust in my own perceptions. It kept me dependent on them to define reality. I feel disgusted that I was so easily able to be roped into that nonsense, but I have a much broader understanding of how important it is to safeguard my ability to think critically and be discriminating in the influences I allow into my mind. I'd like to repeat that. She has a much broader understanding of how important it is to safeguard my ability to think critically and be discriminating in the influences I allow into my mind. So we'll continue. I estimate it took me three full years to deprogram and heal emotionally from that first round. I even seemed to emerge stronger and wiser. But some residual conditioned beliefs had remained entrenched. I hadn't shaken the notion that it was my defective character that prevented the relationship from being able to function and cause continual chaos in my life. I still looked inside myself for answers instead of looking at what my abusers were doing and recognizing the control they had over me and the effects on my life. I even smartened up and eliminated those wretched antidepressants and found a therapist who was a tad more helpful than the pill-pushing psychiatrist. Yet none of them really addressed the issue at hand. Digging all over the past to try and explain the present was useless. And medicating in an attempt to alleviate the symptoms, insomnia, nightmares, anxiety, foggy thinking, which were present to alert me to the existence of ongoing abuse, was just plain dangerous and counterproductive. Even worse, the therapist had suggested I rely on the psychopath for reality checks on how my depression was going. This was even more damaging. I've noticed these days in most domestic violence protocols, they make it clear how imperative it is to the victim's well-being that if they are involved in counseling or substance abuse treatment, that it is safely kept out of the knowledge and control of the abuser because it presents an easy vulnerability to sabotage and exploit. Those are very wise words that I really hope that people will take into consideration here. And I'll talk later about the therapy aspect. So I'll continue on. I remained pretty isolated during my first year in, in Seattle, and all my focus was on trying to repair my defective self. 
while the psychopath was having a grand time of running around with his ego pumped up by his subjugation of me spending the $30,000 his mother had loaned him. I struggled to pay my rent, deal with the loose ends from my move, find work, and get established. Whenever I did see him, he made a show of either flashing large sums of cash or flaunting what he had bought himself. He got a lot of ego boosting out of letting me know how much fun he was having and how popular he was. It occurred to me that if he had really been serious about wanting to see if there was any way to work out our relationship, he would have been seeing and talking to me more often possibly engaging in joint counseling, and most likely investing or saving that money so that if we did decide to make another go of it, there would be a down payment on a house. There would be some kind of visible action occurring. But there never really had been a relationship, and I did not really exist in his world. Is and always was about him and how he chose to slant the reality of what he wanted it to appear to be. There was never going to be a relationship, and all of the promises had been lies to keep me hooked, running through hoops until I was deemed no longer useful. I began to pull my attention away and focus on rebuilding my life. I cringe when I think back to the degradation and humiliation I endured. Yet I also remember that I had been completely brainwashed. I am saddened when I remember the emotional rape and the psychological torture, but proud when I remember that I made it through that chaos alone on whatever inner strength I had. I struggled through my first year there, finally landing a short-term job by the sixth month I was there. Once the job ended, my lease was up and I couldn't find other work fast enough to continue paying my rent. The psychopath enjoyed exercising the position he was in to refuse me anything I asked of him. The keep-away game, one of his favorites. At that point, I had explained the situation and asked to move in. He laughed and told me to get my life together. I could not live with him, while telling me how much he loved me at other times. Phrases like, I'm not capable of dealing with you in a relationship. And you don't love me. You love the idea of who you decided to think I am. As though I had projected this onto him instead of the reality that he had presented me with a false image mirroring to me what he wanted me to believe. And you don't love me. You need me. You only want me because your life isn't working. As though he wasn't a direct factor in causing this to be the case. And... This was a lousy, miserable relationship. You are addicted to your own idea of what you want it to be and what it is. As though he wasn't responsible for making it what it was. Punishing me for falling prey to all of his manipulations and invalidating the validity of my feelings because he knew he had manipulated me in the first place. I was still very much under mind control. At some point, I began to recognize how the entire situation from the brutal discard in California through his suggesting I move up and across, live across town and the continuing degradation and abuse had all been a sick, twisted game of control and manipulation. 
his goal having been to create a mindless, controllable puppet out of me. The game went something like, If you want to be with me, that makes you stupid because you fell for my game, and you have just given me the control to manipulate you by withholding what you want. If you want to walk away, I will come after you because you are a challenge, and I will pull out all the stops until I get you to fall for my game again so I can prove how powerful I am and how stupid you really are for wanting to come back to someone who just got away with destroying and abusing the hell out of you. And I can destroy you for having gotten away in the first place. And I will take away everything you were able to build in that time, because I don't have those things and you do. But I hadn't reached that point, yet it came in retrospect years later. I did, however, reach out to an old friend and relayed my plight. He owned a house in the mountains in California and could use, there was a house made it just left and there was a place available and it was cheap, so I left. I was surrounded by people for the first time in two years. I was accepted for who I was and how I was traumatized and all. Most in that house took an immediate dislike of the psychopath, and through many conversations with the friend who had invited me to stay, I was clued into the fact I had been abused. He was the first to put the picture together for me. I believe true healing had begun for me in that house. I was finally able to get work at a computer company by my second month there. Ironically, the psychopath had remained in contact with me, and upon learning I had landed that job, had begun stepping up his contact, even flew out to see me several times, and had me fly up to see him. We now flew back and forth to see each other almost every weekend. For the first time since we had dated, I was seeing a different demeanor in him. He was no longer patronizing, dismissive of me, or rude. He had completely morphed back into the man I had fallen in love with. As a matter of fact, he was overly supportive in just about everything that was going on in my life, like night and day. I was constantly praised, told how much he loved me, and I was promised by him how much better things were going to be. It had only been six months since I had been told, you can't live with me. Yet now he was putting out the suggestion that I move into his apartment with him. Three months after that, my contract at the company had ended. The psychopath flew down and I rented a U-Haul, which he helped me pack up and drove the truck while I followed in my car. I was back in Seattle and living with the psychopath again, one and a half years after he had walked out on me. I failed to notice the correlation between the rise in my self-esteem and all of the psychopath's flattery and supportiveness, I guess is what is called the pumping up. I had no idea it was a tactic or that I had been sucked into it, but it was to establish a pattern that would persist for years. Seduction trapped me via my commitment, destabilized me through continual verbal and psychological abuse, creating chaos in my life, and destroying the progress I made when not with him. Slandering me all over town by making it appear that it was me who was a problem. He who was some kind of a victim. 
would execute a brittle discord once I was completely destroyed. He would wait until I was almost completely rebuilt and then come back in supportive, loving, concerned, and helpful to fix the remainder of the destruction he had caused in the first place. I don't know how to clearly relate the most phenomenal aspect in that pattern and how genuinely his personality would change when he was seducing me back in, in spite of what I knew what he had done to me. He could make himself appear so completely different that I would find myself seriously doubting the validity of my memories of the torture. Cognitive disassociates. I think... I could not rectify the complete and total difference in how he was and ended up discarding my own knowledge of the abuse as a misinterpretation of reality. How could someone so loving and perfect have really done to me what I thought, in quotes, I remembered? I also could not handle the knowledge of how sadistic and cruel and truly evil he had been. Why would anyone do these kinds of bizarre and sadistic things? My mind did not want to acknowledge that kind of evil existed. It was easier to deny my perceptions than to admit to the existence of that kind of insane cruelty and the fact that he had indeed perpetuated it against me. His mother had convinced me that I perceived the abuse incorrectly anyway, that it was really me who was unstable and not able to handle the normal ups and downs of life. My boundaries were too weak in relationships, and that I was projecting my own failings, inadequacies onto my abuser, according to her. I was really the sicko, or I was driven to seek out victimization due to some mental defect. So I will close this part for today and continue on next time. But I'd like to make a few comments here. What I found the most interesting over all the years when victims would talk about their stories, never once did the concept of gaslighting enter into the conversation. And it really left me baffled when I started thinking back over the years and what I learned from all these victims um, who truly were survivors I struggled with why didn't anybody mention the concept of gaslighting, which I've covered extensively in other podcasts. The reason I believe that it was never mentioned is because when it's done well, it's impossible to detect. So all along, that's what I think she's referring to as far as a lot of these games, because the game is to convince you that you're the crazy one. Even though there's a glimmer of thought in your mind that you're not crazy, but it's a tactic that is used to drive you to the point of feeling crazy. And it also extends to those around you because the more they can get you cornered, isolated, and this feeling of craziness, the less likely you are going to be able to escape. And this story is a really great example of how even when escaping, it's really easy to be brought back in. That's why over the years, I understand that victims would escape and then reunite with their abuser. And this is actually quite a common thing. There's some statistics that I really can't remember offhand right now, but um, it takes many times to get rid of an abuser. And it can also be a very dangerous thing to happen. So 
I don't recommend just abruptly doing it, and I don't recommend doing it without some sort of advice or support. And so later on, I will talk about how to find a therapist, and I want to be very clear. I do not think that all therapists are bad. I think that there can be a lot of help that you can find by finding the right abuser. A listener recently wrote to me how they found their therapist who actually ended up to be a very big part of their begin of the healing process. So I do believe in the power of, of a therapist. What I don't do is say that if you're in a relationship and you think you're with a psychopath, I'm really not clear that going into counseling together is effective. But that is just my view. These are only just my views. What I'm trying to share with you are the 20 years that I learned from the victims over the years, and then all the incredible connections I was able to make by interviewing the psychopaths for my book. But, you know, I'm just kind of getting to the point that it took a lot of work to set up the private email box so that you can email me independently without exposing your email. And I turned 67 a week or so ago. So I've got a lot of autoimmune issues. I'm just going through the 15th so time that I've had shingles. And I wouldn't recommend going out and getting the shot. If you want more information, you can email me. But what it is, it's a, it's a breaking down of the immune system, the autoimmune system. It can be triggered by certain foods, which I've avoided, but it's the stress that keeps reuniting it. And like my doctor said, it's extraordinary to have somebody have it so many times. But it all has to do with years of being not heard. It has to deal with years of feeling like being at fault for things that happened. And even though my situation was completely different, like I said in the YouTube interview, that I wasn't a victim, but we were talking about relationships. So I always had the idea that the best way that I could help others was to keep myself out of the middle. And I'm not going to humiliate myself again by asking for help, but I did receive three donations, and in the last few weeks, I've only received a couple of emails. When I was much younger, like many years ago, I taught a very specific kind of sales technique, and so I had a live audience, so I was able to connect with the audience and be able to understand where to take the conversation. I was able to help them further by the question and answer period. And I'm really at a loss here. I'm feeling like, I don't know where you want this conversation to go. Up to this point, it's been a year now, I've just been guessing. Obviously, I guessed way wrong when I thought that we would eventually be able to move to a paid platform. But I don't know how to express myself. I think that support is a two-way street. I'm here for you. I want to help you. And it's really not about me because I'm pretty much at the end of the trail here. My system has been worn down enough that there is no no repair. But that's not a, a ploy for any kind of sympathy. I'm just stating the facts. And if we are to have any kind of a relationship, I do need to hear from you. I'm just at this point holding a microphone and speaking into a blank room. I don't know. Is it helping you? 
Do you have other areas that you need help with? And I don't, I don't know. We, we may or may not ever get enough downloads to move to a paid platform. I can't keep supporting the, fin- the financial end of things. I don't feel like I should continue to have to keep asking. And if you're not finding any support, then let me know how I can support you. At this point, I'm drawing a blank. So I'll continue with this story in future episodes, and I really don't want to revisit this again. I I did receive information from people after the last time when I asked for help with suggestions like, well, maybe I should do more on social media. Maybe I should learn how to download the podcast myself so there wouldn't be that outside expense. I'm sure they were all met with a great deal of kindness, but I've got to be real here. Getting this podcast together every week is about the extent of what I can do. And so while I appreciate the comments, I really need help and support more than new ideas because I kind of feel compelled. I'm kind of at the end of my life. My situation is long past and over with. Of course, it's still painful to look at because it wiped away my self-esteem and everything that I had. But I want to share the knowledge that I've gained over all these years. So if you want me to be here to help share that information, I'll be here. But really, if you don't, that's okay too. I'm perfectly fine with that because it takes work. And if I don't hear from you, then I don't know if I'm putting my energy in the right basket at this point. So... I'm just going to leave this alone and continue on for as long as I can, and I wish you all the very best, and I know that with the right kind of support, it is possible to get out of this situation, and it is possible to get out, and remember that your mental health is as important as your physical health. So anyway, let me wrap this up. Goodbye for now. Talk to you later. (music) 